Although Agnes Varda premiered her first feature film, La Pointe Courte, at Cannes in May 1955, it would be a full year before it was picked up by a distributor. And even then, it received a scant two-week release in a single cinema in Paris. Despite such a discouraging start, however, Varda went on to forge herself a glistening career. And here she is at the Lincoln Centre in 2015, recalling the simplicity with which she made her debut. I was not a student of anything. I knew nothing about cinema. I said, you know, this... And we did a very small crew. We were seven, you know, and everybody was doing three jobs in a way. He was doing uh, production, managing, but he was pushing the, the chariot, c'est pas, what goes on the trail. And she was doing not only continuity, but she was packing the film and going to the station to send them to the lab, you know. The minute I did the first shot, as I said, I said, well, this is what I want to do. I will be. I am already a filmmaker. That was it. It would be another six years before Varda got to make her second feature, Cleo from 5 to 7. But one of the reasons why she was able to make a feature film with such a small crew in the first place was because of the enormous changes happening within the industry. During World War II, the Allied governments awarded contracts to industrial developers to help in the campaign to defeat fascism. When the war ended, a lot of that technology was redeployed for civic use. The motor and aviation industries were obvious beneficiaries. But the impact was also felt in medicine as well as telecommunications. As for the film industry, change came with smaller, more mobile equipment that had been designed for field reconnaissance. So, by the 1950s, those same mobile Bell and Howell cameras and Ampex reel-to-reel tape recorders were helping filmmakers tell new stories in new ways. That resulted in greater mobility which in turn meant to increase speed in production. And that energy transferred to the screen, with films suddenly having a spontaneous, improvisational feel. Consider, for instance, outdoor scenes. Four crucial French films from the era, three of them made by first-time directors, Claude Chabrol's Le Beau Serge from 1958, François Truffaut's The 400 Blows from 1959, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless from 1960, and then, a year later, Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7, each show characters roaming freely about the street. With the new technology, an event as seemingly mundane as walking along the pavement suddenly took on a vital, exciting immediacy. But groundbreaking as the three other titles are, it was only Varda who dared to make the simple act of walking central to her plot. Now, perhaps those sounds have put you in mind of this film. Point Blank, John Borman's classic from 1967, in which Lee Marvin plays a criminal so overwhelmed with revenge that he literally stalks down his enemies with homicidal intent. Adapted from Richard Stark's novel, The Hunter, the character is named Parker, but Borman appropriately renamed him Walker. While nowhere near as plot-driven as Borman's film, Cleo from 5 to 7 does nonetheless possess an equivalent interest in death. Varda focuses her attention on a late 20s Parisian woman, played by Corinne Marchand, who goes by two names. In public, she is known as the pop singer Cleo, while privately to her friends, she is known as Florence Victoire. 
While out walking about the city's left bank, shopping for hats and stopping for coffee, Cleo presents a smile that suggests she is a happy, vibrant woman. However, Cleo's smile is a mask Florence has constructed to conceal her anxiety as she awaits results from a cancer test. To put it very starkly, as Cleo walks about the boulevards, Florence is stalked by the prospect of death. But rather than going all out and calling her film Death and the Maiden, Varda simply alludes to mortality by giving the story a very restricted time frame. Running for just 86 minutes, Cleo from 5 to 7 unfolds almost in real time. All the very earliest films unfolded in real time, but once the editing was invented, the option of extending or contracting time proved such a liberating device that precious few films opted to return to the earlier form. So much so that prior to Varda's film, telling stories in real time was an extremely limited exercise. Alfred Hitchcock did it in Rope, Robert Wise with The Setup, Fred Cinnamon in High Noon, and Sidney Lumet with Twelve Angry Men. Again, each of those stories were very plot-driven, with death as more than just an idle passenger. But what further distances Varda's film from them is that she structured her story to that of a novel, with 13 short episodes, each beginning with a caption telling us just how long it will be. Chapter 4, Cleo from 18 minutes past 5 to 25 past 5. Chapter 9, Cleo from 5.52 to 6 o'clock. Ordinarily, we would link such a device to an action or thriller genre where the hero races frantically to prevent a bomb from detonating. But Varda has Cleo doing the exact opposite. Rather than racing towards the results, she is hoping to walk away from them. Yet, despite this ever-urgent fatalism, the title's actual meaning refers to something else entirely. Here to explain is Varda, this time from 2004, addressing the European Graduate School. Cleo de Saint-Cassette is a title, you know, the Saint-Cassette in French. It's like afternoon love meetings, very daring, you know. And Claude Merode was a famous... There were these women around the 1900s who had been very famous. You know, they were loved by rich men who paid for them, you know, a house and horses and carriages. It was like flirting with something light about Cleo, the saint said, Love rendezvous or something. When it is fear and waiting for a doctor's rendezvous, which has nothing sexy about it. Later in the same session, Varda also shared her motivation to write the story. What is dominating my feelings about Paris? It's fear. I'm not a Parisian and I felt that it's a city to be, to be afraid of, afraid of loneliness, afraid of so many people. And so fear, the fear of what? And at that time, it was fear of cancer. And then I remember a, a novel by Diderot, Jacques le Fataliste, I don't know if you ever saw it. He goes with his servant in a way, and then they make a trip traveling. And there are other people telling stories, side stories. And that's why when they go in the cafe, you hear a story of a man about his wife, a couple make a little discussion. So little impression coming from other things. But the main thing is she waits for 
result of a medical exam. With such a unique mixture of the private life clashing with the public persona and then death mixing with romance, it is perhaps fitting that Varda opts for a slightly different style for each chapter. For instance, when Florence is with her friend Angèle, Varda uses a 35mm lens, wide open. But when she meets with her lover José, Varda deployed a long lens, which glamorises the image. None of this should come as any surprise, because Varda was bringing with her a deep knowledge through her extensive experience as a stills photographer. In fact, for the film, Varda went through no less than three separate cinematographers, Alain Lavant, Paul Bonis, and the man who received top billing, Jean Rabier, who would later develop a continued collaboration with Claude Chabrol, but not before having lit The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which was directed by Varda's husband, Jacques Denis. However, beyond Diderot's picaresque novel, Jacques Le Fetiliste, whenever considering Varda's film, I am always put in mind of another story of a person walking around a city, James Joyce's Ulysses. For each of the chapters in his reworking of Homer's ancient epic, the Irish author deployed styles that imitated different literary forms. For instance, the ninth chapter, Scylla and Charybdis, is a dialectic. The penultimate chapter, Ithaca, is presented as a catechism while the final chapter, Penelope, is delivered in the form of monologue. In addition to diverging cinematic styles, Varda then directed Marchand to deliver slightly different behavioural patterns for each episode as well. Physically restrained in one, then demonstrative, fidgety and nervous in another. In a third, prowling like a cat behind dark sunglasses. Later, flirty and frivolous. And then, when, on one of the many occasions, she looks at herself in a mirror, reflective. Cette figure de poupée toujours la même. That unchanging doll's face. With that ridiculous hat. Je peux même pas lire ma propre peur. I can't see my own fears. I think others look at me. I look at no one but myself. It wears me out. After that, Varda delivers another brilliant moment when Cleo strolls into a cafe and sachets over to the jukebox. She selects a track, which just happens to be her own record, and having pressed play, simply saunters about the tables. Incidentally, all of Cleo's songs were composed by Michel Lebrun, who would later go on to score The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Not exactly a song and dance number, it appears at least to be Cleo, the pop star, out amongst her people. However, as she strolls about the cafe in her black sunglasses, Cleo is not so much the empress Cleopatra, but rather the inscrutable Sphinx. Here is a woman who is many things, visible yet invisible, accessible yet enigmatic, timeless yet mortal. Varda's influence was far-reaching yet subtle, so it is perhaps little more than a coincidence that within the next couple of years 
no less than three British films all have their lead female characters walking about the streets of London, all with outward appearances that starkly contrast with their inner selves. In 1965, Catherine Deneuve played beautician Carol Ledoux in Roman Polanski's Repulsion, where she distractedly wanders about Kensington High Street before succumbing to homicidal psychosis. In that same year, Julie Christie played Diana Scott in John Schlesinger's Darling, who begins her ascent to stardom when a TV news crew spot her while she is out high street shopping. And then a year later, Sylvia Narazano's Georgie Girl opens with Georgina Parkin, played by Lynn Redgrave, skipping merrily along Brompton Road. While Cleo is walking, Varda intercuts images of her with brief shots of other people, the tarot reader, her friend Angèle, her lover José, to indicate what Cleo was thinking. Practically speaking, those shots are flashbacks, and so give us access not to Cleo's inner voice, but her inner I. Those shots refer to moments she is trying to process, anxious memories, and only add to Cleo's worry about her medical results. Here is Varda to explain this time speaking to the BBC in 2010. Oh, you don't play with memory, you deal with it. Because memory is something fragile. I don't remember. And I remember, you know, it's like you pick, you know, you pick what you can, what comes out. Remembering happiness is a kind of happiness. So that's the way I deal with it. If I can grab, including the pain. But even had Polanski, Schlesinger and Arizano managed to give Cleo an inner eye, what Varda does when Cleo walks through the cafe is quite groundbreaking. People aren't listening to Cleo's song, instead they are talking amongst themselves, and Varda takes the time to eavesdrop on their conversations, showing us lives in progress, lives under discussion, lives up for debate. Everyone has their own little vignette to express, and Cleo hears they each have their own concerns. <laughs> Together, those snippets and other exchanges we hear amount to the idea that there is a whole world beyond Cleo's consciousness, another world parallel to hers. And being 1961, that parallel world is Algeria's war of independence against France. Time and again, we hear voices alluding to the conflict and the division it is generating within French public discourse. Of course, that war brings death, and the proximity of it brings Cleo into contact with a young soldier home on leave. Just like Cleo, Antoine, played by Antoine Borsalaire, is fearful for his own future. And so the two share a stroll in Parc Montsouris, and then a tram ride which might remind you of yet another picture. All right, I got an idea. Are you ready? It's Q&A time. We've known each other a little while now. We're stuck together, so we're going to ask each other a few uh, direct questions. All right? So we ask each other questions. Yeah, and you have to answer 100% honestly. Of course. Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise has Jesse and Celine, played respectively by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, 
simply walking and talking their way around Vienna. The sequel, Before Sunset, reunites them in Paris as again they walk and talk. But while the second film in Linklater's trilogy is designed to unfold in real time, what it isn't able to do is precisely what Varda achieved, a film that maps an accurate route through the city. The streets and places Cleo walks are precisely the ones anyone would have been able to cover on the same journey in the same time. And that brings Varda's film into a completely different genre, documentary, which is how Varda once described her film, the portrait of a woman painted onto a documentary about Paris.